This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors, item number one. There were some debates in Detroit at the Fox Theater this week. I think everybody knows that by now. Two nights, Tuesday and Wednesday, 20 Democratic candidates for their party's nomination, 10 on each night. We're not going to talk about that anymore right now because we got a guest coming up in a few minutes uh, to discuss the debates. Jack Spencer from MERS, uh, he will be on. Uh, Let me go to item number two. The Michigan Republican Party has challenged Proposal 2, which voters approved last fall in court, claiming it unconstitutionally disenfranchised up to half a million voters from serving on the independent redistricting commission created by the proposal. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson's draft redistricting proposal application has come under fire. Critics claim that her application is too skimpy on the demographic categories necessary to have a redistricting commission that mirrors Michigan's diversity. In that regard, here's a story about another redistricting panel that is struggling for diversity, this one in California. Writing in the San Francisco Chronicle, John Wildermuth, a reporter, writes, and I quote, the commission that will redraw California's political lines after the 2020 census is looking for a few good men and a whole lot more good women, Latinos, and Asian Americans. A lack of diversity in a group designed to represent all of California is a growing concern as the August 9th deadline for applications pour in and the panel will draw new boundaries for congressional and state legislative districts. The gender imbalance is a problem in coming up with an applicant pool, quote, that reflects California's diversity, said Margarita Fernandez, a spokeswoman for the state auditor's office, which is responsible for putting together the panel that will handle the post-2020 redistricting. Only 22% of the applicants in California, this is John Wildermuth writing in the San Francisco Chronicle, only 22% of the applicants are registered to no political party or minor parties, far less than their 33% statewide registration, according to statistics released by the state auditor. But the real disparity shows up in the ethnic and racial balance. Two-thirds of the applicants are white in a state where Anglos make up 
only 37% of the population. By contrast, about 13% of the applicants are Latino, far below their 39% of the state's population. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are also underrepresented in the applicant pool, although the number of black applicants is almost exactly the same as their percentage of California's population. Even overall applications are down. With the deadline for the first round of commission applications a little more than two weeks away, the 7,800 people who have submitted their names are far short of the 30,000 people who applied 10 years ago. The numbers are worrisome for groups concerned that minority communities could be cut out of the mix when it comes to appointing the commission members next year. In a letter to State Auditor Elaine Howell, this is the California State Auditor, on Tuesday, members of the redistricting California Collaborative called for extending the August 9th application deadline until the end of September. Here's a quote from the letter to the auditor. California voters only get one shot every 10 years to draw the lines that shape our future. We, the people, want a chance to make a real impact for our families, neighborhood, and state, unquote. Now, here's my comment. Could this happen in Michigan? Stop and think about it. In California, candidates for the Citizens Redistricting Commission, one, must be a voter who has been registered to the same party or with no party since July 1st, 2015. Two, must have voted in two of the past three general elections. Three, cannot have contributed $2,500 or more to any state or local candidate in any calendar year. Four, cannot be a registered state or federal lobbyist. Five, cannot be a state or federal officeholder or candidate. Six, cannot be an employee or paid consultant for a California political party. Seven, cannot be on the campaign committee of a candidate for state or federal office. Eight, cannot be a member of a political party central committee. Sound familiar? Well, that's pretty much what Michigan's commission calls for, although Michigan goes even farther, and they're saying relatives of a lot of people in the categories I just listed also cannot be in the applicant pool. Now, this is writer Wildermuth writing again in the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm quoting, extending the deadline would give community groups time to recruit applicants. Uh, One of the groups said that sent the letter. Quote, this is a comment from Ray Lopez Calderon, executive director of California Common Cause. He says, We need differing views on the commission and not just ethnic views. Women are severely underrepresented, and we need people who know the different parts of the state, unquote. Wildermuth continues with his article. The auditor's office spent about $3 million for outreach 10 years ago and is just starting to run radio, print, and social media ads to persuade more people to apply for the commission. A number of applicants came in late last time. We're already beginning to see a surge this week. To Lopez Calderon, those efforts show the effect of an application period that was trimmed to about two months this year 
from about nine months in the 2010 cycle. Ten years ago, we had time to plan the rollout. We could screen qualified candidates already participating in the community, which you cannot do with a radio ad. This is the second time out for the redistricting commission. It was created by 2008's Proposition 11, that's the counterpart to Michigan's Proposal 2, which was designed to take politics out of a process that has always been controversial. Uh, It had been before that five Democrats, five Republicans, and four members from outside the two major parties. That was changed by Proposal uh, 11 back in 2008. So Wilderness concludes none of the commission members can have partisan political links, either as a major donor, a lobbyist, a legislative or congressional staffer, or a candidate for state office. The 14 commission members will be paid about $300 for every day they're on the job, plus expenses. There are lots of requirements, but the process was designed to be very transparent and to filter out any potential conflicts. The initial application takes only about five or 10 minutes to fill out, according to to the California processors, but the secondary one is much more detailed, asking about the skills and background applicants would bring to the commission. I'm going to be back in a minute to talk about the debates in Detroit, and then we're going to go on to another topic in a court decision earlier this week, which could have severe budgetary and fiscal implications for the state. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with a special guest political pundit. At least I'm going to make him one this morning. He is a longtime reporter for Michigan Information Research Service, MERS, as it's called. He's now the MERS Senate reporter, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have opinions about all things political. So, Jack Spencer, welcome to the Political Insider. Uh, Thanks for having me, Bill. Okay. I think, as everybody knows by now, in the Fox Theater in Detroit this past week, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, we had two debates of the 20 candidates who qualified Uh, for these debates uh, running for the Democratic presidential nomination, 10 on Tuesday and 10 on Wednesday. And I'm just asking, what's your overall impression of those two debates? Do you think it really changes anything in the Democratic race right now uh, compared to the way it was a month or two ago or going forward? What do you think? Well, as you know, in these... uh these primary type things that are getting ready for the primaries, which are still a ways, quite a ways away. Um, it, a lot of it has to do with the person of the moment, et cetera, et cetera, who gets momentum, who doesn't, uh, kind of following the horse race that way. I thought the overall winner um, was Elizabeth Warren, uh, more for just being a steady, uh, competent, having a steady, competent performance compared to the other ones, uh near the top, who kind of, I think, each had a little bit, had their own problems. 
Um, the one that stood out to me was everybody was, I think, watching to see how Kamala Harris would do after her uh, very aggressive and uh, uh, sort of attention-getting performance last time. She had an abysmal night. She was picked apart uh, on all sides. What we found out is as long as she's the prosecutor, she looks really good. But if she's on the defense <laughs> She's, if she's on the, if she's defending herself, if she's in the witness stand, uh, she is. Uh, she can't do it. That's a and pretty. It, that's a pretty good metaphor. Several sides. Yeah, it, that, it certainly wasn't Biden who did it to her. Yeah, no, I agree. Listen, I I agree with you one hundred percent. Everything you said so far, I think Elizabeth Warren was the winner of the two nights, and I think Kamala Harris did not cover herself with glory in her performance. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, did any of the other candidates uh, stand out to you? Let me just briefly run through this staggering list so that everybody knows who we're talking about. We're talking about Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, John Delaney, former U.S. representative from Maryland, John Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, Amy Klobuchar, U.S. senator from Minnesota, Beto O'Rourke, former U.S. representative from Texas, Tim Ryan, currently a congressman from Ohio, Bernie Sanders, back again, Elizabeth Warren, Marianne Williamson, the self-help guru and author. Uh, The second night, everybody I just mentioned was on the first night. The second night was Michael Bennett, U.S. senator from Colorado, Joe Biden, We don't have to say much more about him. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. Cory Booker, U.S. Senator from New Jersey. Julian Castro, former cabinet secretary in the Obama administration. Tulsi Gabbard, a U.S. representative from Hawaii. Kirsten Gillibrand, U.S. Senator from New York. Kamala Harris. Uh, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington State. And businessman Andrew Yang. That was all the second night. So what do you think? Any of these people, did they do anything to uh, make them jump up in the polls and money raising so that they'll qualify as one of the top 10 who will be able to get into the next debate because they're going to cut the field from 20 down to 10? Well, I think the ones on the bubble who might have gotten in were Gabbard. And by the way, she was the one that really took the piece out of Harris, if you actually watch uh, the debates over again. Um, and the other one, um, Yang, uh, consistently, I think may very well stay in. He, he's, he's interesting because he's the one who seems to be having a good time and he's the one who seems to sort of not go after everybody, but he just kind of acts like, you know, I have some real ideas here, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how he's going to explain his thousand dollars for everybody, et cetera, but he may not have to for quite a while, but, uh, I suspect he makes it in and, it, that's interesting, too, because I think the reason he may get in is just the contrast that he presents. Uh, he's the guy who's calmly in the corner, and he's not really hurting, hitting anybody or anything else. And he, I suspect he may pick up a point or two doing that. I think Cory Booker had a comparatively good night that's more based on his aggressiveness Um he may have managed to be aggressive enough and to uh, to make the cut. Um, Harris will manage to stay in, I'm guessing, 
but uh, obviously I think she really took some hits. Um, you, you, uh, you, Bi- you, Biden obviously is in. I thought Delaney did a pretty decent job, uh, although it's somewhat obscure. Buttigieg, uh, I can't pronounce his name very well, he's probably going to still be in. Uh, Hick and Looper did all right also. Obviously, Sanders and Warren. So I think that's 10. Yeah, so do you think uh, Sanders, um, you know, distinguished himself, or how did he perform overall, you think? Unfortunately, I think he's becoming a caricature of himself. And I think his support is there's the true believers and there's the ones left over from 216. And the thing is, I see him less as a legitimate shot at getting the nomination and more of a potential kingmaker uh, at some point. Because if he if he holds, if he can hold the percentage that he has, uh, he and he very well might. Because I think a lot of his people are very, very loyal, the, uh, the voters who are sticking with him. Uh, I don't see him forging ahead a lot. Again, I think to some extent the show's over for him as far as his best shot was when it was just he and Hillary, um, you know, uh, two and a half years ago, three right. years ago, I guess. Right. But, um, but no, I think Sanders is – I see him more that way. And, and I want to say something about Biden because – what I saw with Biden, and this is actually it might have been predictable, is he's being told, look, you got to hang on to that 40 percent plurality in the Democratic Party that are more institutional and more relatively um, middle of the road. And um, so what you've got to do, and, and I actually associate this kind of thing with in the past with a lot of Republican uh, candidates. Well, he's got to walk this tightrope. So he's going to have to hold his own and defend himself, et cetera, and, and, and say what he needs to say to, to participate, at the same time walking on eggshells to not offend the left. And I think it very much affects his performance. The first time he went way over the first debates, he went way overboard on walking on eggshells, and it looked terrible. This time he did a better job of defending himself. But, boy, that is a problem and a balancing act that even even will hurt him if he gets the nomination, even in the general. That makes it very hard for a candidate to perform. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, we could keep talking about this ad nauseum. As you know, there's so much to say, so many candidates. But, Jack Spencer, you've given a great overview of what happened at the Fox Theater in Detroit this week and who's likely to survive. Thank you very much, Jack Spencer. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on the show. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with a very insightful guest on a subject that has not really gotten the kind of attention that it deserves, but could have momentous implications for the finances of the state of Michigan. This guest is John Moak, and he is a law professor at Wayne State University. He is president of the nonprofit Taxpayers for Michigan Constitutional Government, and he was once a candidate for mayor of Detroit who ran one heck of a campaign back in 1973. I remember it. John Moak, 
Welcome to the Political Insider. Well, thanks, Bill. Thanks for your comments. Okay. I want to start out by asking you to explain as succinctly as possible, and it may be difficult, what is the Headley Amendment to the Michigan Constitution? When was it passed? Why? What was its aim? And was it a good idea? Uh, The Headley Amendment to the Michigan Constitution was passed in 1978. It was part of a nationwide revolt of taxpayers that wanted to uh, impose limitations on the ability of the state and local units of government to indiscriminately simply raise taxes on on the local ta- on Michigan taxpayers, and so the amendment was uh, added uh, ten new sections to the Michigan Constitution, primarily to limit uh, the ability of state and local governments to raise taxes, but. The drafters of the amendment realized that uh, local governments had to be protected against having uh, the state uh, reduce its uh, uh, support through revenue sharing uh, of local governments uh, in order to keep uh, state revenue that uh, that they that they uh, would not be able to generate through increasing state taxes. So it included in the Headley amendment the drafters did it in approved by the voters of Michigan. Three sections in the Headley Amendment that protect local governments, sections 25, 29, and 30. And basically, uh, those sections prevent uh, the state from imposing mandates on local governments uh, without providing state money to fund those mandates. And they re- the uh, section 30 requires uh, that the state continue the proportion of spending or sharing of revenue with local governments uh, in the future after 1978, the same proportion as we shared in 1978. So the state can't uh, reduce the proportion of state revenue sent to local governments uh, in order to keep it for themselves because they were limited in raising taxes to to fund uh, additional programs uh, that they might have in mind. They had to continue to support local governments at the same proportion as they did in 1978. And that uh, turns out today to be uh, local governments are entitled to receive 48.97% of all state revenue every year uh, to support local local programs and, and local activities. Well, now, let, me, let me ask you this. At this point, do you think, under the Headley Amendment, local governments have been protected? No, they have not. That's the purpose for the lawsuit that basically uh, challenges uh, the state on the way in which it is uh, computing the proportion. Uh, Every year, the state uh, uh, Department of Technology Management budget certifies that it has uh, uh, spent at least 48.97% of all state revenue on local governments. Uh, but, But our position is that in computing that proportion, the state is including amounts that are not entitled to be included. And in fact, if those amounts were excluded, the state would be uh, only spending less than uh, 40% of state revenue on local governments. And that reduction in spending, as, as we have described it in, the, in our lawsuit, that, is, that reduction in spending has put financial pressure on local governments, and in some cases have caused distress. 
Well, I mean, this has been going on for 41 years. Uh, so the cumulative shortfall of revenue to local governments must be staggering at this point, if what you say is correct. Well, local governments are staggering. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the uh, the total cumulative effect uh, is uh, is in the in the tens of billions, um, and the 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 primary problem arose in 1994 uh, when uh, Prop A to reform school financing was adopted. Uh, when Prop A was adopted, uh, in combination, the state legislature. Uh, reduce the ability of local uh, school districts to support local schools through the pro- local property tax. Substituted uh, and and basically placed on uh, the ballot a constitutional amendment, Prop A in 1994, that increased the state sales tax by two percent with the intent of using that two percent to fund the schools. Well, the local property taxpayers essentially uh, paid what they would otherwise pay to the the local school districts, paid a sales tax that was then sent to the local school districts. When it was sent to the local school districts, the this Department of Technology Management Budget counted that payment as payment to local governments and reduced the revenue sharing that was being sent to all other local governments that were receiving it. So cities, villages, counties, townships, junior colleges all saw the revenue that they were receiving reduced after basically what the state had did through legislation and through the constitutional amendment is it took money that the local taxpayers were paying to schools from property tax, made them pay a sales tax, then took the sales tax amount and reduced the state revenue that was otherwise being sent to these other local governments. That allowed the state to keep $3 billion a year for its own programming. So, in other words, your lawsuit is claiming, among other things, that uh, Proposal A should not have been counted as state spending on local governments. Correct. The Proposal A funding of schools, which essentially was a replacement, of local, the local taxpayer funding of schools by, by tax, placing a sales tax on local taxpayers and then sending it to the schools was then considered by the Department of Technology Management Budget as, as state revenue paid to local governments and therefore the other state revenue that would normally have been paid has been, was kept by the state for its own purposes. And therefore, as I said, cities, villages, and townships and counties were cut back by virtue of that maneuver, that accounting maneuver. Now, Section 25 of the Headley Amendment, which is the third section I haven't yet discussed, provides that uh, the state may not uh, shift a tax burden to local units of government. And what we say is that by engaging in that accounting maneuver, they have shifted a tax burden, that is the Department of Technology Management Budget has shifted a tax burden to local governments to raise their own local taxes to cover what they're not receiving from the state or to cut back on services or to become (laughs) governed by emergency managers. Okay, let's move forward in time to 2016. 
uh, three years ago. What happened then? You and your cohorts filed suit. Maybe you can explain who was involved in this suit and what has happened since. Well, in, in 2014 at a Michigan Municipal League conference, one of the mayors made a speech that he felt that this, the city's villages and others are being shortchanged over a number of years, $6 billion, by the way, in which the state was uh, interpreting the Constitution. And so what I did is uh, I said to uh, some of the local officials, uh, I'll take a look at uh, whether or not there's any basis for that argument. Beginning in, in uh, 2014, and by the time we get to 2016, uh, we've shaped up the, the argument and uh, have encouraged 20, uh, 20, basically 20 taxpayers to to join an organization known as Taxpayers for Michigan Constitutional Government, along with 20 local governments themselves. And uh, we uh, decided to uh, commence a lawsuit uh, based upon uh, the state's violation of the Heavy Amendment. Okay, we're going to have to take a break here, but we'll pick up on this right after the break with John Moat, Wayne State University law professor. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with John Moak. He is a Wayne State University law professor. He is president of the nonprofit Taxpayers for Michigan Constitutional Government. They have filed suit against the state of Michigan for violation of the Headley Amendment to the Constitution back in 1978. It's been in effect for 41 years. And when we took a break, uh, John Moak was describing how the suit was filed in 2016 what's happened since then and what is this suit asking the state to comply with that they are not complying with oh bill um the the uh the suit was filed in 2016 in the michigan court of appeals now the reason why it was filed in the michigan court of appeals is that the headley amendment itself stipulates that a lawsuit to enforce the headley amendment is to be brought in the michigan court of appeals so it was filed in the Michigan Court of Appeals, and there were three claims. One claim was that the Department of Technology Management Budget counting uh, funding of, school, of schools uh, uh, under the under Prop 8, under the Prop 8 sales tax, uh, should not be included in the proportion of 48.97% of, of state revenue that needs to be spent with local governments. Should not be uh, should not be included. Uh, the second claim, basically, is that the funding by the state of charter schools is not the funding of local governments because a nonprofit corporation, which is a charter school, controlled by a private board of directors, not beholding to any voters or any electorate, uh, not not having any geographic boundary, um, b- basically is. Uh, is not a local government, and therefore the money that's being paid to charter schools under Headley and the interpretation of all constitutional provisions uh, is to be what the voters at the time the provision was adopted commonly understood the meaning of any term to be. And so in 1978, our argument is that the understanding of what a... uh, a local government was uh, the common understanding 
was not a private corporation run by private individuals, and uh, and accordingly, uh, the uh, the, mo- the amount of money being paid to, to uh, charter schools uh, is not eligible to be included in the percentage. What was your third claim that you made? Third claim was that uh, under Section 29 of the Headley Amendment, and we prevail in this claim under under Section 29 of the Headley Amendment, uh, the the state. Uh, is required to fund any uh, any mandates, any obligations to perform a function that it imposes on a local government, uh, and and so uh, there are some instances where the state has imposed an obligation on a local government and has funded that obligation, and our, our, we maintain that that those amounts cannot be counted because they're not spending on local governments in the form of aid. For local governments, but they are reimbursing local governments for obligations that the op- local governments themselves did not voluntarily voluntarily undertake, and uh, the state imposed on them, and and therefore that money should not be counted as support for local governments. Okay, well now this week the state court of appeals did make a ruling, this three judge panel, and as I understand it, you prevailed on the third claim but not on the first two is that correct that's correct we did not we did not prevail on the prop a argument on the charter school argument the court split two to one judge peter meter uh upheld our basically believed we were correct in our argument that charter schools are not local governments in fact he very strongly believes that uh, from what we uh, heard him say at the hearing, and the way, and what uh, the uh, general reflection is on his uh, his opinion, which he wrote a separate dissenting opinion. But the other two judges disagreed with him, and they, they were did. the majority. They did. Okay. So, now the so third the claim, claim was not upheld at, at the, in the court of appeals. Yeah, the third claim was that unanimous. It was unanimous, and uh, there's another aspect of that third claim. In order to have great. Total transparency as it relates to these obligations that the state imposes on local governments, known as mandates. Uh, the uh, Headley Amendment and the legislation that implemented it in 1978 required the state to annually annually report, uh, that is the Department of Technology Management Budget, annually report on the mandates that were imposed on local governments and the amount that the state was funding them. And they have never prepared the report. So the Court of Appeals, in addition to upholding the claim, ordered, uh, pursuant to the issuance of a writ of mandamus, ordered the state to prepare the reports that were required, as, as the court saw it, uh, under the Headley Amendment. Why do you think the state has failed to file these reports? Because they failed to uphold any transparency, you know. The, in 1994, when when the uh, Prop A was passed, you know the, the the same argument could have been advanced as we're advancing it now at that time. But but it's not clear how these computations are being made uh, by the state, and accordingly, there's uh, there's it's obscure, it's ve- it's it's opaque, and uh, and it's and this failure failure to comply with the requirement. Well, let, let me interrupt just at this point and ask you, what happens now? I mean, this could be appealed, this appellate court decision to the to the state Supreme Court, right? You could appeal it, and maybe the state 
wants to appeal the well, third well, claim yeah. finding. Well, I can say the state is be my guest. Uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the likelihood is that we will appeal. Uh, we think that the uh, we, you know we respect the uh, the opinion of the court, but we think uh, that as we did earlier that our our our, our claim is correct, and um, uh, we have not yet. We will be meeting in the next couple of days as a team to review next steps. But my guess is that we will take this to the Michigan Supreme Court. Well, let me. Uh, ask this question. I'm not a lawyer, but is it possible if you appeal it to the state Supreme Court, they could look at the whole thing and they could end up uh, striking down all three of your claims? They could take away from you something you've already got in the appellate court decision, couldn't they? Well, sure. Anything's anything's possible, (laughs) but I think uh, our claims on solid ground, I think the charter school argument that we lost on it, is uh, is is a winner? Uh, I think Peter Meter, Judge Peter Meter, was correct, and uh, it'll be more difficult on Prop A, but uh, but I, I don't see us losing on our, on the claim that we've already established. Okay, let's say you appeal to the Supreme Court and they uphold you on all three things that you yeah. are asking for, including uh, Proposal A. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not retroactive, right? I mean, the state couldn't be asked to come back and you know, award $50 trillion to local oh, no. government. Well, when we first filed the, filed the lawsuit in 2016, we requested, uh, we believe the statute of limitations allowed us to uh, have two years in, 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 uh, in, 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 in previous two years damages, along with, da- with any damages going forward. So we asked for damages for 2014 to 2016, and then any damages that might might occur thereafter for the failure to comply. I got you. Well, what and, what what uh, are, so what what are the dollars we're talking about here? What we're could talking this... about several billion dollars a year. Okay, go uh, for each fiscal year beginning in 2014. And yeah, but what happened was when we when we when the hearing was held in January of this year, after all of the papers uh, all, all were exchanged. Uh, which there were there was a motion to dis, uh, for summary disposition, an answer reply, and a sir reply. So that took a number of months. But in, well, the hearing was held in January of, of this year, 2019. Before at the opening of the hearing, we withdrew our damage claim because it would have been for five years and it would have been some approximately approximating something close to more than 50 percent of the state's budget. So we didn't think that that was a, that was a practical as a matter that court would award that level of damage. So we withdrew the damage claim, and what we are seeking is to correct the wrongs going forward. We're, we're seeking injunctive and declaratory relief so that it does not continue. So we're not looking at any past damage claims now, but if, for example, uh, we were to prevail, then each year. On all claims, each year the the local governments would receive several billion dollars in additional support going forward. Wow. Listen, we could keep talking about this, but you've taken us through it from A to Z, from 1978 when the Headley Amendment passed, right up to where things stand right now. And it looks like there's plenty of action in the courts ahead of us, maybe at the Supreme Court level So, John Moak, I want to thank you very much. Wayne State University law professor John Moak, 
who is president of the Taxpayers for Michigan Constitutional Government. You've been a great guest, done a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Bill.